Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. If you're anything like me, the topic of death and dying isn't something that you want to talk or even think about. But there was a time when death wasn't as abstract as it can sometimes seem today. Death had a lot closer to home because it was literally happening in the home. Before the 20th century, most people died in their homes with their loved ones then tasked with preparing the body for burial. The jobs of coffin makers, funeral coordinators, and undertakers slowly took over and the funeral industry became more professionalized. By the 1970s, at least two-thirds of Americans died in hospitals and it widened the gap between the living and the dying. Today, we're starting to see that gap narrow once again. In 2017, more people died at home than in the hospital. And the COVID-19 pandemic has forced many people to confront death head on. At the same time, we're also seeing major changes in the death care industry. From the emergence of things like green burials and human composting to the diversification of funeral directors. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we hear from three women who are rewriting narratives around death and dying in the U.S., First up is Cole and Perry. She's founder of the School of American Thanatology and one of America's leading experts on death, dying, and grief. Cole, welcome to Disrupted. Hello, good morning. Thank you for having me. So I'm going to admit something, and I, I'm hoping and imagining that I may not be the only person who has this experience. You're the founder of the School of American Thanatology, and I admit mm-hmm. that until we were preparing for this show, I had never heard of the term thanatology. Hopefully, I'm not the only person uh, in this conversation, but if I am, that's fine too. Share with our listeners, or for those who may not be familiar with this term, what is thanatology? Great question. Um, While you may not know what thanatology is, you definitely know what we study and look at. Thanatology is the study of death, dying, grief, and loss. And it's kind of a large field, even though there's not a ton of us thanatologists running around in the world these days. I noticed that in giving that definition, you seem to make a distinction between death and dying. And I think in popular understanding, we often collapse and conflate those two. Do you think about death and dying in in separate ways? And if so, what are the key differences? Death is the end point of the life cycle. It's just a so like a it's a, it's just an event. It's when your body changes its sort of status. Um, dying is the process that leads up to getting there. But one of my favorite questions is, well, what is dying? When do we really start dying? Um, how are all the different ways we can look at that? And that's that is what keeps us thanatologists fascinated, because a lot of this work does not have a true black and white yes or no clear answer. 
And in some ways, it seems like that defies human nature, right? Because we want yes. a concrete starting point, a concrete ending point, and being able to see here are these clear markers and definitions. And at the same time, as you said, for the space that you're in, it creates all of these pathways of understanding and knowing and differences in experience. I'm curious, Cole, what drew you into this space? How did you become interested in thanatology and interested more broadly in death and dying? So I at, I at no point in my life thought that I would work with, a sub, with this sort of subject matter. I viewed myself, especially when I was younger, I was going to like write for magazines or maybe work in fashion because my perception as a young person was if you work with death, dying, grief, or loss, you have to be really quiet. You have to be wear black all the time and you have to be sad. And I didn't want any of those things. Um, so over the years, as my career developed, I found that of everything out there, that this was what was capturing my interest. And in, in particular, I'm most interested in grief. It is endlessly fascinating to me, and it's also endlessly inspiring. Loss, whether it's loss of a person or animal that we love, what I call a big death or shadow loss, which is a loss in life, not of life. Loss is the thing that is destabilizing in our lives, right? It's the thing that comes in and pulls the rug out from under us. Um, but it's also the thing that can beget for a lot of people motivation and inspiration to change your life, to um, decide to do the things you've always wanted to do, to reevaluate who you are and how you want to function the rest of your life in the world. Do you think that in the United States, we properly understand grief? Or do you think we try to sort of impose, again, this finite status that grief is something that has a timeline, that is something you just get over as opposed to working through? What's our American conception of grief? And how does that encourage the kind of fascination that you have? So Americans, oh, we are complex little people when it comes to death, dying, grief and loss. Um Many Americans will tell you that we have a taboo, for example, around death. It's my opinion that we actually don't. We're confusing it. We actually have a taboo around grief. We are American society is littered with death. It's in our TV shows. It shows up in our commercials. It's on the radio. True crime, the huge genre, right? But when we all look away is when the grief shows up. And that's what the taboo is actually around. And that's where a lot of the particularly American discomfort is rooted is with the grief, not the death, not the death at all. I also wonder, as, as you're saying that, you know, death is a pervasive feature in America. And I'm also thinking now of American pop culture and whether we're talking about video games or kids movies, right, like Coco. This is something that is so pervasive, but I also think in sometimes in the United States, as you said, we don't talk about grief, but we also don't talk about that sense of loss, that there's actually a person, a family, a connection on the other side of that, even as it's become this thing that we see across all of these spaces. What does that disconnection mean? for the kind of work that you have to understand grief, loss, understand all of those connections that happen. So we teach people that grief is an emotion, but grief is not an emotion. You cannot feel grief the way that you can feel happiness, sadness, hopelessness, despair. 
those are emotions. Grief is not. Grief is a response to loss and your response is unique to you. And it's a collection of six different categories um, where you can experience what we'll, we'll just call them symptoms. Grief is also not an illness. It's not a disease. It's not something that needs to be cured. There's nothing wrong with you if you're grieving. It is a normal part of being a human. Cole, as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm sort of realizing or putting this connection together that people in our lives are experiencing various forms of grief every day, all the time. And as you mentioned before, not just the big moments, but also those more mundane moments and experiences that can add up too. Tell me now, given what you've just shared, right, what does training and education in your field look like? What does it mean for someone to become a thanatologist or how do they become a thanatologist? So thanatology is a, because it's a young field, the, the word thanatology itself was only coined in the year 1905. So, which is wild to me because I'm pretty sure we've been dying before 1905. Um, so most thanatologists, they are already some other career or job, and then they pursue additional education and training in thanatology. And they kind of wear it like a backpack on their primary function. I am unique in um, uh, the world, uh, in, in the world of thanatology, because I'm a true independent thanatologist. Um, and because I have three diplomas or professional certifications from in and outside the United States. Um, so for me, that's something that I really value is um, making sure that I'm not only listening to my own <laughs> culture, what I grew up around, what is my normal and trying to step outside. And I find that that's helpful for most people with death and dying. When people learn about how other people handle death, dying, grief, or loss, all of a sudden it often feels much more manageable. It feels like it's less of a big deal. Um, and it feels like the stakes are perhaps a little bit lower. What is it that excites you as you think about the field of death, of death care, the sort of expanding field of that? What is something that excites you or that you think more people should know about? I'm really excited right now about how in the U.S. people are having more conversations and curiosity around disposition. Like, okay, you're, you're dead. What are you going to do with your body? We have more options now than at any other point in American history, American funeral history, which is really exciting and fantastic. America is very different in the way that we perceive what to do with our bodies when we die because we have so much land. Whereas in many other places in the world, these countries do not have as much land as we do. So the option to bury in a plot and have that space for all eternity has just never been on the table. Uh, most Americans, I would say, don't know that. But when they learn how it is in other countries and has been for hundreds of years, we start to look differently at our own practices and behaviors. That awareness of the difference in practices and cultures around the globe in alignment with the increasing diversity of the United States and of growing populations. On one hand, it's a wonderful thing because we can see the need to be more culturally literate, to be more mm -hmm. expansive in our understanding. And yet, Cole, I sometimes worry that these sacred practices, experiences, and traditions are becoming commercialized and codified. Right. You can find a sugar yes. skull in any party supply store, totally devoid of the context and the meaning of paying respect to elders and ancestors. 
in your field, how do we balance that, that understanding of the need to be more globally aware, because it, it certainly is important here in the United States, and still respecting and honoring the diversity of those traditions? I am so excited about this question. So at the School of American Thanatology, I have students in 26 countries. And what you just said is one of the most commonly reported reasons why they come to the school to just learn more about death and dying. It's because they're recognizing that they have inherited some sort of lineage connected to cultural practices that touch death, dying, grief, and loss. But we're losing it. When you move away from your communities of origin, you're moving away from roots that you are entitled to, that you were born into. And what happens in our attempt to have this cultural connection, to find the meaning around death and grief, is we buy it in the stores because it's the only place that we have access to it. Where else do we go to learn about different cultures, you know, and have proof that it exists and be able to hold it in our hands? Um, this is something I worry about because there's so many beautiful traditions, even just different um, cultures have poems or just words specific to those end of life practices. And I tell people, look up your tree, like look up your family tree for guidance related to end of life. Who do you come from? What did they do? How did they handle it? Look there and see if you see a reflection of yourself in a way that is meaningful and makes you feel rooted. I'm also thinking about the importance of tradition and organizational practices, for example, in particular communities where longstanding organizational affiliations have their own ritual and practice connected to that experience of how they support families, of how uh, they come to terms with a next stage in a transition for the community. Mm -hmm. And this idea of how can we be aware of that, even when it's not our own experience, it may not be what we're comfortable with, but how do we honor that? And I wonder, yeah. Cole, for someone like you who works in this space, who is educating people globally around these issues of death and dying, how does this affect you personally? Like, are you able to make that separation or does it shape your own views and your own experiences here? Yes. So being somebody who works with death and dying and loss and then in my own life, when somebody I love dies or when I'm navigating a deep personal shadow loss, um, I will tell you that I don't think <laughs> all of this knowledge and experience I have has made me, quote, like a better griever. I mean, I still get hit just as hard as anybody else. The only difference is that I might have more language or words that help me describe and pinpoint different parts of my experience, which then better helps me communicate like to my spouse or to my friends. The truth is there's nothing that's ever going to be able to take away the experience of grief. It is an important part of being a human. It's really important that everybody grieve at some point because the grief is what reveals who we are to ourselves. Um, but we can alleviate some of the those rough spots by just making sure that we have more language, that we understand what's happening to us, and that we're able to have self-awareness. I appreciate that you have directly indicted this myth or this sort of cultural standard that working through grief is a sign of strength or weakness, that it mm -hmm. isn't that kind of judgment and evaluation. It's just a part of human experience. 
And I wonder then for people who may be listening and are uncomfortable talking about death and dying, loss and grief, maybe because it's too personal for them, or maybe it's just not something that they are used to having to talk about. What's the advice that you give to people who may be uncomfortable? Yeah. Notice what you're, what's happening in your body. Like if you're listening to this and like all of a sudden you notice your arms are crossed in front of your chest, what are you protecting? If your breath is really shallow, what are you afraid of? Um, Just ask yourself and listen. Um, It's my view and my appreciation and value of grief is not dismissing the intensity and the permanence of what you have lost. You can have a terrible loss, a profound loss, and still have the grief process be something that helps you find yourself again. Grief is something that we earn. Grief is something we're entitled to. Grief is something that we get to inherit and we get to choose for ourselves. It's not a disease. It's not a battle. You're not going to win because there's not a fight. Um, Grief is something that just we just have to witness. We have to listen to it. And it's going to teach us what we need. Colin Perry is founder of the School of American Thanatology and one of America's leading experts on death, dying, and grief. Cole, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're looking at changes in the death and dying space. In the early 19th century, caring for the dead was considered women's work in the U.S. Women were called on to handle the body, but that changed following the American Civil War, when undertaking became a career dominated by men. In recent years, that balance has shifted again. The U.S. has seen a spike in women entering the professional death care space. According to the American Board of Funeral Service Education, about 65% of graduates from funeral director programs in the U.S. were women in 2017. Now, while more women are entering the field, the funeral industry still struggles when it comes to racial diversity. Many Black funeral directors have witnessed firsthand that inequities in life are perpetuated in death. Joelle Simone Maldonado is also known as the Grave Woman. She's a licensed funeral director. Joelle, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much, Kalila, and thank you for having me. You wear many hats. You are a funeral director, an embalmer, an insurance agent, and a sacred grief practitioner. 
How did you first get into the death care space? My biggest influence was my uncle Mark, who's now transitioned and is an ancestor. Um, he was a funeral director and an embalmer. And when I was a little girl and he was in mortuary school, I was fascinated by what he told us that he did. And I had millions of questions for him. And one day during spring break, he said, you know what? I'm going to take you to the funeral home so you can see what you what I do. And everybody thought I was going to be so freaked out, but I wasn't. I fell in love and it was like lighting a, a match. It just took off. And he was the gasoline that just, boom, set it on fire. You talk about, with great reverence, your Uncle Mark and witnessing his work in this space. But I know that it's also important to you, the sort of cultural uh, arena that you and your family were in, particularly being raised in the heart of Gullah culture and the ways in which that culture informs practices, but also informs a tremendous reverence for elders and also for ancestors. What was that intersection for you of being raised in that uh, very important culture and also seeing how your uncle carried out his duties in that space? Like many young people, I did not realize how beautiful and important my culture was until I got out into the world and realized that my colleagues and many of the people that I was engaging with and having conversations about death and dying and grief and the afterlife did not have the same roots that I had. And so it it really makes me appreciate my upbringing in Gullah and Geechee culture. But I think like myself, it was just something that was ingrained in my uncle. And that's one of the things I can remember him telling me the first time we went to the funeral home was that you know, I'm so excited and I, I'm a kid, so I'm almost playing. And he's like, no, this is a place of respect. The embalming room is a place of respect. You, you don't say things that you wouldn't say to your grandmother in front of your mother in this space. You know, I know a lot of people come in here and they turn on music. You don't turn on music that would be offensive to your grandmother or your mother. And that's the the root of my reverence for the the embalming room. There's a responsibility that comes with that. There's a tremendous responsibility to honor people uh, in death. And I'm thinking here, Joelle, particularly for people who often experience dishonor in their life. And the context for that is, you know, much of the public conversation and awareness surrounding Premature deaths, particularly of people of color, often at the hands of law enforcement, but not always so. How do you carry that sort of cultural awareness of what's happening across the country, what's happening globally, into this commitment to honoring people, to affirming dignity, not just for the person who has transitioned, but also for the family and the community to whom they are attached? That is such a beautiful question. Um, and to be honest with you, I wish I had the words to articulate a, like a great answer to that. Yeah. But the truth is, I put myself in the place of this person's physical body has been destroyed or mutilated or abused in some way. And it's not, like you said, always at the hands of law enforcement. Unfortunately, in our communities, there's a lot of violence amongst 
us as a people. But the thought that always comes to me is this is someone's baby. This mother, this is the last time that she's going to see her baby. And I can remember, again, going back to my uncle and our culture, I can remember my grandmother standing there as they were closing the lid on my uncle's casket and saying to the funeral director, that's my baby. And so that is what I lead with. There was a point when I was doing my apprenticeship where I honestly, the best thing that I was able to do for the families that I was serving was to step away and take a break because it was just so much gun violence and so many young black men being killed in various circumstances to the point where I thought I was becoming numb and that numbness scared me. Let's talk about that because I'm always curious for people who work in this space and to work in this space has to be more than just a profession. It sounds Mm -hmm. to me, Joelle, like it's a calling. And I'm always curious about people who answer the calling in this space. How do you protect yourself? How do you create this boundary where you are surrounded by such profound grief and loss and still there is a sense of hope, a sense of beauty and a sense of commitment that helps to carry you through. How do you create that boundary and that buffer so that you're not overwhelmed by the experience? I think it's very different for everyone. But for me personally, I lean very much so into that connection with my ancestors, into my self-care, which is ritualistic for me. And for me, my spiritual practice, which is rooted in a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of hoodoo, a little bit of, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just trying to connect with the highest power that I can. My mom, my dad, my grandmothers have always said to me, put God first and everything will fall into place. And I live by that mantra. When I wake up in the morning, I dedicate the first moments before I even open my eyes to saying, okay, God, thank you for life. And whatever the mission is for today, help me accomplish it. The much of the work that I do now is online. And you would think that because I'm not physically in the funeral home as much or not physically interacting with people that are grieving physically, it would be less taxing. But honestly, it does not end because my work is on social media. My work is on YouTube. My work is on TikTok. So being very aware of taking breaks away from the computer, taking breaks away from the phone and checking in with my intentions on a constant basis. And I don't always get it right. Before we started this conversation, Joelle, I was talking to my production team about the experience of seeing the funeral of Reverend Clementa Pinckney some years ago, who was the the minister, state legislator, who was killed in the Charleston, South Carolina church, in his very church that he had opened up to this young man who ended up taking his life. And I was sharing that many of my friends who had never had the experience of seeing an African-American, what we call homegoing celebration, were mesmerized, but in some ways confused about the Mm -hmm. experience, right? That in the face of this tremendous grief, there was still joy and a celebration of a life well lived and all of the the pieces that are are part of that. Talk to us a little bit about how funeral and burial practices here in the United States can vary based on race, culture, and geography and how that shows up in your work. Each culture celebrates the end of life so differently. But I think there's a common thread amongst all of us 
that there's something out there, there's something more, there's something on the other side worth celebrating. And for us as Black people, as I'm sure you know, homegoing, the way that we celebrate end of life traditionally here, especially in the Deep South, is rooted in the fact that we were not honored, our bodies were not respected, our existence was not recognized in our life, but we had something better to look forward to, which was literally returning home, our spirits returning home to where we had come from. And I think that's what we're all celebrating in an, to an extent, but the way that we express it is so different. I remember the time, the first time I worked with a Tibetan family and they came into the funeral home and they were burning their money, which I had never seen before. But as I've gotten deeper into my spiritual practice, it was similar to what we do with burning ancestor money. Forgive me, I can't remember the culture, so I don't want to misname it. But there was another service that I worked for an older gentleman and his culture bought blankets. Every person that bought, walked into that funeral home, bought a blanket and they started stuffing them into the casket to the point where his body was covered. And then they started laying them around the casket in this beautiful semicircle. And it was so intentional the way that each person came, bowed and laid a blanket. And by the end of the service, we were filling garbage bags with blankets, filling, 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 and putting them into the family's car. In New Orleans, I'm pretty sure most of us are familiar with the second line culture where the deceased and their family are escorted by dance and music and drums and liveliness. I've worked traditional Catholic services where it's about sitting and being silent. One of the biggest pieces of advice I could give to anyone that's interested in working in, in this industry is to, if you have the opportunity, don't work exclusively with people that look like you, think like you, pray like you, mourn like you. Get out and venture and experience, experience the way other cultures celebrate end of life because it teaches you so much about the way people live life every day. The thing that I'm hearing in this, Joelle, is also with all of the differences, all of the traditions that exist culturally and globally, there's a common thread of connection, of care for the family. But I also think it's an important reminder for the living about that connection, the appreciation for difference. And it also reminds me that even in death, we don't escape some of the trappings that can hold people back in life. And one of those areas is racism. You co-lead a course on racism in the death care space. And I imagine some people will hear this and think, come on, let's, let's, it can't be an issue, right? Racism can't be an issue when we talk about death and dying. And yet your work says, in fact, that it is. How does racism manifest in that space? And what are some examples that you point out in your course so that people can be more aware and actually do better? Thank you for asking this. Um, racism is not something that's escaped in death, unfortunately, because the individuals responsible for caring for those that have passed on, caring for their bodies and caring for those families are living one major way that it shows up is in our curriculum as death care professionals. We are not taught to care for anyone other than white people in mortuary school. Mm 
or historically we have not been taught. Myself and other professionals that are dedicated to this work are changing that, but it's a very slow process. The textbooks that we used and that are issued to mortuary students as a part of our canon are racist in their language. They refer to others as mongoloid and just words that you would not use in 2023 when describing another human being. Um, Professionally, I have seen this show up in the fact that Black people come into the funeral home and white professionals or even some Black professionals or other professionals do not know what to do with our hair. And as a Black woman, I cannot tell you how many times I have seen licensed professionals, seasoned seasoned professionals take a small tooth comb to a natural Black woman's hair and begin to comb her hair, essentially ripping her hair from her scalp. I tell the story all the time of walking into one of my assignments and a white man cutting a woman's box braids or braids, much like the ones that you're adorning right now, from her scalp. And what that means is that he's cutting her hair off, all of her hair. And he did this with no intention of harming her. He thought that he was doing his job, but had I not walked in, what would have happened? How would he have explained that to her mother, to her her family, that she came into the funeral home with a head full of braids, which means she had a head full of hair, and now she has none? That That's mutilation. And it's the undermining of the respect and the dignity that you mentioned. And one of the things I think is so important that I just heard you say is that these things happen intentionally and unintentionally, and perhaps most often unintentionally of the the ignorance, right? The lack of awareness and sensitivity there. And Joelle, I grew up in the South. And so to this day, uh, you know, I'm from a place where there are black cemeteries and white cemeteries. There are black funeral homes and white funeral homes. And that division, even in death, persists for people in a way that I think people of your generation of of caregivers in this space are talking about and calling out in a way that I don't think we could do before, but also allows all of us to think about, again, not just at the time of death, but in the living, how we affirm community and how we recognize difference. What would you suggest then, given your work, given your commitment to teaching and education, what could this industry do to be more thoughtful and more inclusive? I think it's twofold. I think that it's not just the industry's responsibility. It is the consumer's responsibility to demand that the industry get in line and up to date. You can interview funeral homes and ask questions. You don't have to just go to a funeral home because that's where your family's gone traditionally for the last hundred years. You can walk into a funeral home and say, I'm a black woman. Is there someone here that knows how to care for my body? You interview cemeteries and say, you know, why haven't I heard about your establishment? Why aren't you advertising in my community? And then twofold on the other side, it's the industry's responsibility to go into communities where they traditionally have not gone. There's this big misconception that we as black people don't plan for end of life when that could not be further from the truth. Um, Learning to speak the language of those that you're serving, as I'm sure you're aware, euphemisms are a big part of our culture. 
I might not say I'm ready to make pre-arrangements. I might come in and say, you know, I'm trying to get my house in order and you need to know what that means. That was funeral director Joelle Simone Maldonado. She's also known as the grave woman. Coming up, we'll hear about efforts to normalize conversations about death and dying in Connecticut. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we've been exploring the major shifts in death care. These changes are happening across the U.S., including here in Connecticut. We're seeing expanded access to more eco-friendly funeral options, as well as a push to legalize medical aid in dying. At the same time, we're seeing new groups like the Connecticut Death Collective pop up, who's hoping to normalize conversations about death and dying in the state. The Connecticut Death Collective also aims to foster a greater community by hosting events like potluck dinners and death cafes. Celine Carrier is co-founder of the Connecticut Death Collective. Celine, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you for having me. You know, death is a subject that most people don't want to talk about, don't want to think about. And that is particularly true for young people. I think as adults, we often try to shield them from that experience or that existence. But that wasn't necessarily the case for you growing up. Share with our listeners your first sense of awareness of death and what that experience was like for you. Growing up, my mom... I was really close with all of her friends and during my younger years, many of her friends passed away and she played a big role in that. And because of that, so did I. And so, you know, from a, from a young age, I experienced loss and experienced firsthand the dying process and, um, and honestly how transformative it is to be a process, be a part of that process. I imagine there's also a great sense of responsibility, but also privilege in being a part of that process and being able to help not just the person who's going through that transition, but also those close to them. And you have significant experience caring for people at the end of their lives. How does that form of caregiving and support shape how you think about death and dying? What my experience working with people who are actively dying has taught me is that when it's happening on a person's own terms, you know, in their home or surrounded by the people that they love, doing the things that they want to be doing. You know, I had a client that in her last few days, we were playing her favorite card games and that gave so much meaning to her life. You know, having meaning in your life up until the very end, I think is what is most important. Um, a lot of institutional care. And I understand how hard the people work um, in, you know, care settings, but the human experience is often lost long before the person actually dies. And I think that that is, um, you know, what I learned the most in providing hands-on care to people. And I work primarily in people's homes. So I was really able to, um, you know, create the type of experience that the individual was hoping to have and their families. I'm curious though, Celine, 
what you just shared is beautiful, that you are helping to affirm the dignity of people throughout their transition, affirm the life that exists, even in those last moments, and helping people to enjoy their moments and be reflective in that. But I'm also curious about how that affects you and how do you create that boundary that says, I'm a part of this person's process while still recognizing how it affects your humanity and your sense of being to be a part of that? For me personally, it allows me to to have normalized the dying process. I don't feel um, aversion to it because I've come into contact with it so many times. I'm still afraid of dying. And I, I think that most people are, no matter how much time you spend thinking about it and talking about it. Um, but I feel more comfortable meditating on it and having discussions with people. And um, I think that that is what allowed has allowed me to be transformed by the experience, but also hold it lightly. I don't feel overwhelmed by it. One of the things that I know is important for people who work and exist in fields that are taxing emotionally, physically, and just overall is to push past the sense of isolation, that you're the only one working in this area or the only one who's committed to this and creating and curating community seems to be so important for this area. You co-founded a group called the Connecticut Death Collective. Talk to us about how that collective got started and what you and your co-founders hope to create and achieve through that organization. Connecticut Death Collective was started by a, um, a group of women who are all interested in death and dying. Um, Jackie Genovese and I originally started it recently, just last year. And what we hoped to do through Uh, having educational events, but also just events in which the community can gather is open up dialogue and create connection between people that are working in all different facets of um, death and dying. So we host a monthly potluck and we have everyone from funeral directors coming to that, hospice chaplains. We have a lady who provides in-home euthanasia for animals. She was a veterinarian. And so our goal is that people that are dying and people that have loved ones that are dying are able to use us as a resource, reach out to us, and we can help put you in contact with people that are going to make that process um, more healing and hopefully a little bit easier for you and your family. What's the significance of having a group of women come together to create this collective? And certainly caregiving is not uh, unique to women in terms of only being something that women do. But there's certainly quite a history of women as caregivers and supporters. Was that intentional or was it about these are the people with whom I'm working and I'm in conversation? It was not intentional. Um, And we have had men come to our, our groups for sure. But it is overwhelmingly women. And I think that, you know, death 
requires you to um, give up control and sort of surrender to the process. And I think that maybe in some ways um, that can be a little bit easier for women to lean into the discomfort and um, and instead of trying to fix an issue, you know, we can just be present with the person and um, offer that beautiful nurturing ability that women for some reason seem to be particularly able to offer. <laughs> I imagine that in those spaces, there is a tremendous sense of vulnerability but also the opportunity to curate safety in those spaces. And so those monthly gatherings that you mentioned are called death cafes. I wondered if you could share a a story or an experience that you've heard during those cafes that really speak to the power of creating space for people to be vulnerable and connected in ways that perhaps they wouldn't otherwise be able to. Yeah, so the Death Cafes were started in 2010 by John Underwood and Sue Barsky Reed. So those are one event that we hold, and that's just an opportunity for anyone that has an interest in talking about death to do so um, in a way with no agenda or objective. Then we also hold our monthly, we call them our death workers potlucks. And, um, and so that's for people that are working in the field or or have a desire interest to work in the field whether that's professionally or as a volunteer but i would say that in the death cafes um you know of course what is always most powerful is when we have people attend that are actively dying um it just it's profound to you know i I feel that when that happens, everyone in the group is just riveted in wanting to listen, um, to hear what that person has to say about, you know, what they're enduring. And unfortunately, a lot of people who are dying end up getting wrapped up in fighting for their rights up until the very end, you know, the right to die on their own terms, which is really sad because that should not be um, you know, those rights should be protected and that shouldn't be what a person in the, in their final days is, is um, focused on. You mentioned unjust legislation. And one of the things we know, Celine, is that everything in life and in death is connected to politics, is connected to sort of ideology and who has the power to make decisions over the choices that we have. That is certainly true in a number of debates here in Connecticut. What sorts of changes are you seeing uh, politically or legislative that connects to the work that you're doing, but also some of the concerns that others may have, whether it's those who are actively dying or those who are concerned about their choices? What's happening here in Connecticut? Right. So I think we have two main issues um, that are sort of buzzing around in Connecticut. Compassion and Choices um, is a bill that was introduced to the Public Health Committee February 2022. Um, It's called An Act Concerning Aid in Dying for Terminally Ill Patients. And this was modeled after the Oregon Death and Dignity Act. And it allows for a terminally ill, mentally capable adult with a prognosis of six months or less to 
um, have the option to request, obtain, and take medication should they choose to die peacefully in their homes on their own terms. And right now you can go to compassionandchoices.org, read people's stories. Um, you know, they have petitions you can sign and just really try and get this bill moving forward. It's um, been brought up to a vote again and again, and um, and it hasn't been passed for, for a lot of different reasons. Um, but I do think that, you know, you read people's stories and it's moving that people don't have a right to die the way that they want to um, in Connecticut. And we also have human composting, which was just sort of brought forward by Keith Denning. He is a freshman legislator from District 42. And this, if this bill was passed, it would open the door to natural reduction. Um, New York just passed this. It was the sixth state to um, legalize human composting and, you know, that can be done in a few different ways. It can be done through just a shroud burial, just in the ground, um, or it can be done in more of a urban setting, like Recompose in Washington State, which is a company that um, has urban human composting. And you can look that up and learn all about it. It's fascinating. Given your work, given all of the circles that you're involved in, the sort of evolution that you've seen over time, how would you define a quote, good death? I, you know, I in some ways struggle with the with the term a good death. I think it holds merit. Um, and I think ultimately it's people dying on their own terms. And, and for that to happen requires forethought, thinking about what that means for you. Some people, you know, they want every medical intervention available to them to prolong their life as long as possible. And it's important to think about what that means. And some people don't, you know, they want to just be at home or in their garden and just have it be peaceful and take as long as it will. And, you know, it's just whatever is best, whatever is quote unquote good, considered good to that person would be a good death for them. Celine Currier is co-founder of the Connecticut Death Collective. Celine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tularski. Special thanks to our interns, Melody Rivera and Elizabeth Van Arnum. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.